0: Tonight, Lord God, we pray for your spirit to move mightily among us as we read and study your word. Lord, take us, if you will, out of ourselves and into your heart and into your word, that we would see it for what it is. To us and what it's worth to us, Lord God, which is everything that we need for spiritual sustenance and growth, for help, Lord God, in our living, for godliness and righteousness. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would move, Lord, to encourage us as we find places in our lives and in our walks said Lord, this word will either encourage or exhort, but certainly affect. So we may honor you, Lord, completely and totally with everything that we are and everything that we have. And, Lord, we want to lift these things all up to you tonight as we come to your throne of grace. To obtain your mercy and to find grace for help in time of need. And one last person, Lord, we pray for our secretary of Virginia's aunt who is in hospital as well for Josefina. And uh, Lord, her condition has not been well, so we, we pray for her and we lift her up to you. And especially, Lord, we pray for, for her salvation. We pray that she would come to know you, Lord. And come to know eternal life through Jesus Christ. It is in His name that we pray. Amen. And amen. Isaiah chapter 10. Last week we began in chapter 10 and read down through and studied down through verse 7. For us to pick up where we left off, we need to go back just a few verses to... To verse 5, as as the prophet, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is is giving judgment to Assyria. And so, for us to understand that a little better and clearer as we go into verse 8, we need to begin at verse 5. And there in verse 5 it says, Woe to Assyria! The rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. For Assyria to be a rod and, and a staff in, in God's hand is to mean uh, an instrument of his judgment upon his own people, using Assyria as a tool of judgment. But he says in verse 6 I will send him against an ungodly nation, and against the people of my wrath I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey. And to tread them down like the mire in the streets. Yet he does not mean so, nor does he, nor does his heart think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. For he says, now this is speaking of Assyria. For he says, are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Kalno like Karshamesh? Is not Hamath like arpad Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images excel those of Jerusalem and Samaria, as I have done to Samaria and her idols, shall I not do also to Jerusalem and her idols? Therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. As I was uh, glancing at the news highlights on an internet website this morning, the title of an article stood out like a sore thumb. And the title of the article was Mona Lisa May Have Been Pregnant. And I looked at that and I said, Who cares? Who cares if Mona Lisa may have been pregnant? What are people looking into nowadays? I mean, in the midst of all the world conflicts that are going on, why does something so frivolous make the top headlines? I mean, there's a lot of things going on in this world. There's a lot of death and destruction. There's a lot of things that are being prepared for the the end times. We're we're in the end times, and all these things are going on about us. And, And I find it incredible that people today are more interested in Mona Lisa's maternal condition Britney Spears' ignorance of child seat laws, or Paris Hilton's blood alcohol level. They're more concerned about all of that stupid stuff, while the future of the known world stands on the brink of nuclear annihilation. And that's nuclear annihilation. I think I was copying the president there for a second. Isn't it a weird thing what people consider to be important? Now, we might rationalize and say that we need the diversion. We need this focus, you know, from so much gruesome reality. And to some extent, that may be true until you begin to realize how much more people uh, in general know about their favorite TV programs and movie stars that they know, uh, than they know how close we are to the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's nothing, wrong, there's nothing wrong with being well-rounded and well-read just as long as we do not neglect the things that matter, the things that pertain to the Word of God and the relevant condition of the present and future of the world in which we live. That's where we are today. Now, we need to be concerned about what's going on in the world But we do not need to be concerned without hope. Our hope lies in Jesus Christ and our hope lies in the promises that Jesus Christ has made. Every promise, I believe, is true and will come to pass. And I believe that we can have the hope that everything that He has said is going to come to pass for the church, for Israel, for all the things that matter in in the Scriptures and all and the things that are happening today. So I don't say this having a concern as if to say that, you know, we need to be so worried. As a matter of fact, we're not to worry. We're to have faith. But we are to be concerned. And we are to have a greater concern about the things that are happening that are, that are global and spiritual and scriptural than all of these little things that seem to matter to many other people. Now, I bring all of this up I bring it up because it becomes easy to overlook the reason why names are given to us in the scriptures that may, on first appearance, mean nothing at all to us. Some of you may have read the same things that I read and you would have said, well, it means nothing to me. And that's okay. And yet everything given to us in God's Word, and this is the point, everything given to us in God's Word has a reason. Everything we're given has a reason. Every word in every place mentioned has its significance, whether it deals with prophecy that has already come to pass, prophecy that is going to come to pass, prophecy that is coming to pass even now. Every place uh, that is mentioned has its significance. We find certain cities mentioned in our text that we may have never run into in our world history classes unless we were really deep involved in it, along with the Bible opened up. But they're nonetheless important to be mentioned in Isaiah's prophecy. As we consider the disclosure of Assyria's judgment, we were first given a glimpse into the mind of God and into the mind of Assyria. This is what we saw in the first seven verses. We were given a glimpse into the mind of God and into the mind of Assyria. We need to remember from our previous study that Assyria had no intention of serving the disciplinary and the corrective goals of the God of Israel. They had no intention. As a matter of fact, when you go back to uh, verse 7, it says, Yet he does not mean so, nor does he think, does his heart think so. Like, In other words, he's not thinking that he is, in fact, a weapon in the hand of God, or an instrument, I should say, in the hand of God. So he has no intention of serving those disciplinary and corrective goals of the God of Israel. It goes on to tell us that it it, it it wants to actually conquer many nations. They sought the conquest and the territorial expansion for their own kingdom, for their own glory. Going back to verse 7, it says, "...yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations." And this brings us to the cities that are mentioned. Now going back to our text for tonight, verses 8 and 9, where it says, for he says, Are not my princes altogether kings? Now, he would probably be the king of Assyria at that time that Isaiah is prophesying about because there were a few kings of Assyria that actually did and made some conquests along the way. But what he's saying here, he says, Are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Kalno like Karshamesh? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? To understand this, we need to, we need to know this. That Assyria had such an inflated view of themselves. This is, the, this is the arrogance and the pride of Assyria. It's coming out in the things that are being thought and said by the king. It had such an inflated view of themselves that they regarded their princes to be on the level of the kings of other nations. In other words, all these nations have kings... Our princes are, are as good as their kings. That's how, that's how much pride they had in their, in their power to conquest. In their power to conquer, I should say. It's like, it's like trying to put a couple of football teams you know, together. You know, one is pretty strong and one is not so strong. And the strong team would boast that its third string was as good as the first string of the other team. Do you understand that? And that's what they're saying. Our princes are as great as their kings. Greater than their kings, actually. And then, the cities that are mentioned here, in verse 9, were overcome by a series of Assyrian kings over a period of time. Not just by one king. Kalno and Arpad, both in northern Syria, were taken in 738 B.C., Damascus was taken in 732 BC, Samaria in 722 BC, and Hamath, which is on the Orontes, in 720 BC. So that's uh, quite a span there, and and it goes on even into Karshamesh, the ancient city of the upper Euphrates that was vanquished in 717 BC. So from 738 or about 740 BC all the way down through 717 BC, these uh, particular cities were conquered by the Assyrians and by the Assyrian kings. But what is interesting about these cities is that they were on a direct line. And see, this is what we need to understand from all that stuff I said earlier about the things that matter and the things that don't matter. Every name in, in Scripture matters. And so as we look at this in a map or on a map, these cities are on a direct line from the capital of Assyria, which was Nineveh. How many of you know Nineveh? Nineveh being the city that uh, Jonah was sent to, from Nineveh all the way to Jerusalem. A straight line. All of those cities right straight to Jerusalem. That's significant. Because it talks about their desire, their conquest, their desire to conquer the lands. Yet God was using that to correct, to discipline, to chastise, to punish, as it were, his own people for their rebellion, for their idolatry. A very important thought comes to mind when we think of the word ungodly. We would like to say that the word ungodly applies only to those people that don't know Christ or don't know God ungodly. Oftentimes we see the Apostle Paul use that to say, you know, once we were ungodly, but we're no longer to be ungodly. We're to be godly. In other words, we're to know that we are with God and God is with us. But when your own people, as God sees His people in rebellion, not listening, not obeying, in complete disobedience to the Lord... The word ungodly comes to mind. They're ungodly deeds. And there's another way of putting that. And understand this because it applies to believers as well. An ungodly action or ungodly attitudes is, in fact, godless attitudes. It is a word that was preserved for those who did not know God, who were without God. Godless people. Now we could say, well, the Assyrians were godless people. And they were. They had many gods of their own, but they were godless because they didn't trust in the God of Israel. But the people of Israel, who are the people of God, were acting out in a godless way. Acting as if they were not led by their God. You see, how important it is to understand what ungodly means? When a believer begins to act in the, in, like, like the world, you're, you're, you're actually living ungodly lives, or you're living ungodly, you're doing something ungodly, and you know what what it says is, I'm living as if God doesn't exist in me right now. There is no God. That's ungodly, folks. You might as well link that thought to the word God-less. Now, I hope better things for you as a believer in Jesus Christ. I hope better things for all of us. That ungodly attitude, that ungodly aspect, that was for the past. That was before we knew Jesus. But sometimes... We take our eyes off of the Lord. We put our eyes on the world. We put our eyes on our desires, and what happens? Now, the the good thing here is is that God has given us His Spirit, and 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 the way that God works in us is that when we begin to move in that direction, God is doing everything He can to get us to see that we're moving in that wrong direction. He gives us that 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 weight of 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 that. Of the Holy Spirit, you know. Conviction is, is what it's called. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. And we know it because we don't feel comfortable moving in that direction because if we did, we'd be ungodly. But we're not ungodly. We're no longer ungodly. And we're not to act ungodly. But if we move in that direction, the more we move, the more we put aside that conviction then you cannot say that the actions that are done are godly actions, but godless. God didn't lead you to do it. God didn't make you do it. Are we understanding that? So I'm just trying to draw the picture so that you can see why God has to do this for His people and even use Assyria as an instrument in His hand to go and bring that kind of awakening and awareness and correction and chastisement to the children of Israel. And the line is drawn from Nineveh all the way to Jerusalem. And it's a sad fact, folks. It was a sad fact. Well, first of all, let's not move on too quickly because the Lord then describes the proud, arrogant heart of of the Assyrians in the next passage. Look at verses 10 and 11. Again, the king of Assyria says, As my hand has found the kingdom of the idols. Now, what's he talking about? Well, read on. As my hand has found the kingdom of the idols, whose carved images excel those of Jerusalem and Samaria, as he's going along this path from Nineveh to Jerusalem. Notice that he says, As I have done to Samaria and her idols, because the northern kingdom was already conquered, as as, as we see here. As I have done to Samaria and her idols, shall I not do also to Jerusalem and her idols? What is that saying about the southern kingdom of Israel? Uh, The southern kingdom of Judah, I should say. What is that saying about both the northern and the southern kingdoms? I mean, it was a sad fact. And by the way, again, yes, it's, it's pointing to the arrogance of, of the Assyrian king to say, Hey, I have, you know, my hand has found the king's. But hey, he's, he's in God's hand. That's, that's the whole point here. He's the rod of God's anger. But the sad fact is that neither the southern nor the northern kingdom was without idols. Brings out the very fact that they're coming. Hey, you know, they're not going there to attack them and say, you know, we're doing this for God. <laughs> You know, he wants to attack their idols. No, he says, hey, they've got idols. Our idols are bigger. Our idols are better. Our idols are greater. That's why we can conquer them. We'll take over their idols. We'll get them. They'll be ours. Nations would come and attack and they would gather everything together. That was the spoils, you see. They would take their gods and then they would say, okay, these are ours now. We'll give them to our gods. They offered them to their own gods, you know. Here are the, here's their idols. Sad fact. Go all the way back to chapter two of Isaiah, Isaiah two verse eight. What is God saying about His own kingdom, about the southern kingdom of Judah? Their land is also full of what? Idols. Their land is full also of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. They've gone and they made these little idols and they set them up on these little altars in their houses and they bow down to them. That's what they were doing. All along, it takes you all the way back to when the children of Israel were taken out of the land of Egypt, you know, and they were told, I'm your God, I'll go before you as a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. You come, you worship me. And when Moses went up into the mountain, you know, to, to be with God, what did the people do? They wanted, you know, they, they had people along there, the mixed multitude, and everybody was saying, hey, listen, we got our little gods, you know, we brought them out from, and, and we, need, we need a God that we can see, only Moses goes up there. But, you know, we need a God that we can see. And so they started making a, an image of a golden calf to worship. And Aaron, who was a craftsman, reluctantly made it. The brother of Moses. Because they wanted a God they could see that this was, this was their perception of their God. Well, he looked like a golden cow. At least we've got something to look at. Of course, God wiped that out. And many who had been worshipping the idols. And God says, there is only one God. There will be no graven images. part of the Ten Commandments. Me alone you shall worship. Should worship no other God because there's only one God and so they went on to worship the cloud of, pillar of cloud by day pillar of fire by night but then later on once again cried out for what they cried out for the things that the other nations had they had the God of the universe they had the God of who created the universe but then they said we want a king like the other nations we want this, like the other nations. We want that, like the other nations. So every time they got close enough, they wanted their idols, and they got idols. And They did exactly what the law told them not to do. They got so bad. In Isaiah 20, I'm sorry, Isaiah, Isaiah 2, verse 20, just the same chapter down to verse 20. It says, In that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship to the moles and bats. You imagine how many idols he must have had. So what the Assyrians hadn't realized, you see, was the special purpose that God had for His people, especially His determination to deliver Jerusalem. It wasn't just to destroy, it wasn't to destroy. You know it was, it, it, it was to correct, it was to bring this chastisement upon them, but eventually to deliver them. The gods of the heathens were simple vanities. But the God of Israel was the living and the true God. Go all the way to Isaiah 46 for just a moment. Isaiah 46 verses 5 through 7. And here God says, To whom will you liken me? And make me equal and compare me that we should be alike. Listen to the question that God is asking. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place and it stands. From its place it shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. Are you going to liken me to one of these idols? Going back to our text, verse 11 reminds us that even though Samaria was given over to gross idolatry, Jerusalem still maintains some worship of the Lord. Verse 11. I've done to Samaria and her idols, shall I not do also to Jerusalem and her idols. Yes, it, it mentions that. It mentions the idols, but remember that there is always a remnant. That'll become a little bit more clear as we get to the end of this particular passage that we're studying tonight. And it gets us to focus once again on the proud Assyrian heart that thought the thought that the Lord was nothing more than one of the idols that they had conquered in Samaria and many other cities. And so the Assyrians were in for a rude awakening, you see. And it's really verse 12 that you understand this more because it says, Therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all His work on Mount Zion. Why does He call it Mount Zion and on Jerusalem? Well, a lot of times we see Mount Zion for Jerusalem, Jerusalem for Mount Zion. Why does he mention Mount Zion and Jerusalem here? He's mentioning it because of the temple. Because of what Mount Zion represents as far as the place where the temple of God would be. That he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria in the glory of his haughty looks. Now, the Lord has two goals to fulfill in relation to Assyria. Two goals to fulfill. He will punish one nation through her and punish her through another. In other words, he will punish one nation, his nation, Israel, through Assyria and punish Assyria through another. Even though the latter nation is not specified here or even hinted at. We have no idea, at least you know, by looking at this particular passage, who that would be. Of course, later on, you know, we could go down the list of Medes and Persians and whatnot and so forth. Then we have the mention of God's work. Notice it says, when the Lord has performed all His work on Mount Zion. So we have the mention of God's work in contrast to Assyria's hand in verse 10. That is the king's hand. Say, in my hand, we have God's work in contrast to that. It may be an unusual work for God from our perspective. And think about it. Isn't it an unusual thing for God to use a nation like Assyria To punish his people, to correct his people, to chastise his people, to discipline his people. It's an unusual thing. But it is his work nonetheless. There's a reference to a strange work of God in chapter 28. I want you to look at that. I'm going to read it in the King James Version. It's, it's Isaiah 28, verse 21, because it uses the word strange here twice. It says in uh, Isaiah 28, verse 21, For the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perizim, he shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work. Notice, it talks about his work. That he may do his work, his strange work. Now, the word strange there in the New King James is is called an awesome work, and, and it's translated in that way. It is an awesome work that God is doing. But then he says, And bring to pass his act, his strange act. Which now he uses that word strange as unusual. It is not a usual thing. We would wonder why would God want to take a a, a godless, heathen, pagan nation like the Assyrians and use them to conquer his own people. It's a strange thing. It's an unusual thing. And really it is an awesome thing. It is an awesome work. It is, a, it is an unusual act. But another verse in Isaiah chapter 55 tells us, God says, hey, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. We talked a little bit about this last week, that you know, God can do this and use it all for His glory. What He does. How He does it. We can't always understand it. We'd always like to understand how God works and why God works the way He does. We can't always understand. I can only tell you this. When God does what He does, He will not sin. He will not uh, do wrong. He will always do righteous. Everything He does will be right. Everything He does will be perfect. Because He's God. If If He did anything less than that, He wouldn't be God. And then we would have to say, Boy, we're in trouble. That who in fact is sovereign, who in fact is supreme, who in fact is omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. But He is. And He uses everything. And always for His glory and for the good of His people. And that has to be understood that God does what He does for the good of His people. When they've gone astray, He wants to bring them back. He wants to get their attention. And so in the case of our text, Assyria is God's agent for its accomplishment. But the pride of Assyria and her king was found in his arrogant heart and exposed by his haughty looks, which means arrogant looks, which brings to mind the question, how much pride can be revealed by a haughty look? How much pride can be revealed by an arrogant look? A whole lot, (laughs) evidently. The Bible describes haughty looks from God's point of view in Proverbs 21, verse 4. It says, a haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. Bottom line, sin. In Psalm 101, we're going backwards from, from Proverbs to Psalms. Psalm 101, verse 5 says, Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. All of these things say a lot about what a haughty look can do. And bring it about pride, revealing pride. Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 18, verse 27. For you will save the humble people, but will bring down haughty looks, arrogant looks. I don't want to really get into political things. The big thing in the news this week was former President Clinton sticking his finger in a reporter's face and pointing out that the reporter had a smirk on his face. I started thinking, but he had a smirk on his face all the way through. (laughs) I want to get political here, but that was a very weird exchange. I don't know if a smirk is a proud look. Maybe it is sometimes. After hearing Chris Wallace talk about the experience, he said, "Well, I, yeah, I was just like stunned by what he was telling me." So, <laughs> maybe it looked like a smirk. Maybe, maybe his surprise look more looks more like a smirk. Whatever. <laughs> There was sure a lot of pride in that room that day. The next two verses continue to reveal the prideful heart of Assyria as the words are written in the style of Assyrian victory inscriptions. Inscriptions that have been found that deal with with the victories of Assyria, uh, which only had one purpose, by the way, the victories, and that was the glorification of the monarch. Look at verses 13 and 14 in our text, Isaiah 10. It says, for he says... By the strength of my hand, I have done it by my wisdom, for I am prudent. Also, I have removed the boundaries of the people and have robbed their treasuries, so I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. My hand has found like a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathers eggs that are left, I have gathered all the earth, and there was no one who moved his wing nor opened his mouth with even a (laughs) peep. What pride! In his very statement of conquest. No boundaries. We've taken away their boundaries. We've taken them out of the land. We've robbed them of their treasures. Strength and wisdom. You see we're we're widely recognized as vital qualities. For anyone in authority. Especially a king. The Messiah of course. Who is a king. Has them through the endowment of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 11, verse 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. Upon whom? Upon the Messiah. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. When we studied Isaiah 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon His shoulder, and His name will be called Wonderful. Then His name is also Counselor. Counselor as far as His wisdom mighty God as far as His strength, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of course, the Assyrian monarchs would boast of these qualities as their own. In their removing of boundaries, in their mixing their peoples and robbing their treasuries. You see, removing their boundaries was, of course, the Assyrians would actually take people who were caught in those nations and move them and take them into other places, you know, where they they were in charge. Get you out of your comfort zone, as it were. They robbed their treasuries. This distinguished them as an absolute power and and the conquered in total helplessness. It distinguished the conquered in total helplessness. That was the whole idea. We move your boundaries. We take you wherever you never lived. We're going to take all of your treasuries. You get whatever we give you. That was total conquest. When Jesus, as our king, conquers us, he gives us everything we need. He takes us out of a place that we really don't need to be in and he gives us a home for eternity. He gives us new boundaries. We're not citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven and of his kingdom. The passage in verse 14 suggests that the Assyrian king took other nations and their wealth as easily as a person takes eggs from a nest. No one was able to oppose his military might as he's doing all of these things. But in the next section, the Lord evaluates the arrogance of Assyria by moving swiftly from one image to another, every word carrying some figure of speech or symbol again. We listen to these things and we think, what is this? Well, listen. It's God's Word. There's a reason for this. In In essence, the lesson is that instruments should never take credit that an instrument should never take credit for what the worker does with the instrument. Did you, did you hear what I said? An instrument should never take credit for what the worker does with the instrument. You take a hammer and you're hammering a bunch of, uh, of nails into a board, you know, in your, in your garage or whatever. And you're putting up a pegboard or whatever. And you're doing that. And you stop and the, all of a sudden the hammer goes, oh, wasn't I Great. First thing is, I'd run, man. i never had a hammer talk to me. So get that when you think of... Look at verse 15. This is what what he's saying. Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up? Or as if a staff could lift up as it were not wood? In other words, uh, as if a rod could... Could actually pick up those who you know who have it in its hand, or or lift up those the staff as, as if it were not worth it would you know, it would just lift up the other person. In other words, the staff would pick you up. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will send leanness among his fat ones. I'll explain that in a moment. And under his glory, he will kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. So the light of Israel will be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame. It will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. Notice. And it will will consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body. And there will be as when a sick man wastes away. And then the rest of the trees of his forest will be so few in number that a child may write them. The strength and the skill are in the user, not in the instrument. What did God call Assyria earlier? The rod of my anger. The staff, you see, of his indignation. Who's glorying here? The scalpel can never take credit for what the surgeon does. And so just think, if it is easy for an unknowing instrument of God to become proud and arrogant, it is also easy for a willing instrument of God to become proud too. It's just as easy. Sometimes we can, often, we can just take pride in what we think we have about ourselves. We'll say, "Oh God, you were so good," but really inside we're saying, "Actually, Lord, I know it was me. I know you—you—you kind of gave me a little bit of of talent, but but you know, boy, I, I really, I really given it. <laughs> what a different attitude Jesus would teach us." Luke seventeen ten. Jesus said, "So likewise you." When you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our, do- our duty to do. All we've done is what it was our duty to do. Why? Because He's the Master and we're the servants. He's the Master. We're the slaves. bond slaves of Jesus Christ. We give all the glory to the Master. Master takes care of us. Master loves us. The master gets all the glory. The bond servant says, Lord, the the glory is yours, not mine. I can't take the glory. You see, when we start building ourselves up, we're up here. We take a little bit of the glory. Tomorrow, guess where you'll be? Down here. I want to be down here so that God gets all the glory up here. Because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. You see, we can get up. We can get up in the morning sometimes. And please don't tell me this isn't so. We can get up in the morning sometimes and not want to do what we know we have to do. Or not feel. The big word feel. I don't feel like it. So we don't do what God tells us. We don't do as God commanded. Who's in control? Who's in charge? Lord, not me. You. You're in charge. I may not feel. But I've got to get beyond that. I've got to get beyond that and go on and do what God calls me to do. And do it with joy. Joy and gladness of heart. One of the great lessons of being a bondservant of Jesus Christ is that as wonderful as it is to be an instrument in the hand of God, the instrument deserves no special glory. The glory is to go to God Himself. That's the neat thing about serving the Lord. The glory goes to God, not us. And so the Lord who would send Leanness to Assyria, as we saw in verse 16, He refers to them as the fat ones. Uh all uh, right, we're not going to go into that. Well, I mean, you know we get, well, you know, we hear the word fat and we, we think all kinds of stuff. But what we're dealing with here, remember they're arrogant, they're full of pride. And their pride says, Look at all we've got In other words, they're fat and sassy in the sense of what they have, in the sense of what they've conquered. the sense of what they've taken and the sense of what they themselves are saying, hey, look, you know, we did it. We did this ourselves. And arrogance will oftentimes lead to an attitude of complacency. Think about that. Pride and arrogance will oftentimes lead to an attitude of complacency that leaves people sitting back fat and sassy while thinking everything is going great. And this actually will happen to Assyria because God's judgment would be like a burning of a fire among them, it says. And under His glory, it says, He shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. And they're just sitting back, comfortable. Complacent, not a care in the world. Because we're on top of the world. I'm the king of the world. Not for long. Verse 17 of Isaiah 10, it says, So the light of Israel will be for a fire and His Holy One for a flame. It will burn and devour His thorns and His briars in one day. And it will consume the glory of His forest and of His fruitful field, both soul and body. And they will be as when a sick man wastes away. I've seen sick people waste away. And it's not a pretty sight. I saw my own brother waste away. Sick for a month and a half in the hospital. Nothing that could be done. Prayed for him. Thankful that God saved him during his time in the hospital. Thankful to know that he's in the kingdom of God today. But as his body wasted away, you feel so helpless. To See the deterioration from within. But this is of a nation, this is of a people of a proud stature. They will be as when a sick man wastes away, the, and then the rest of the trees of the forest will be so few in number that a child may write them. In other words, so few in number that a child could count in, you know, and say, oh, there's only that many. So we're given the image of a sick man gradually wasting away under a consuming disease. So much for the fat cats, you see. Historically, the enemies of the Assyrians wore down her resistance over a period of years. But the decisive moment, notice verse 17, it says, in one day. The decisive moment would come with a downfall of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Which we find praised as an act of God in the prophecy of Nahum. Turn to Nahum, chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read from all three chapters of Nahum. There's only three chapters in Nahum. Naum in Spanish. Nahum. The Burden Against Nineveh. The Book of the Vision of Naum, the Elkoshite. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit. The wicked. The Lord has His way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before Him, the hills melt and the earth heaves at His presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before His indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Now, notice verse 7, because verse 7 is the key verse of this whole book, of this whole prophecy. It says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. What does that tell you? It tells me that it's good to trust in the Lord, it tells me that it's good that we better trust in the Lord. Because he's the stronghold in the days of trouble. If you jump to Nahum chapter 2 verse 13. It says behold I am against you. Who is he speaking to? Nineveh. What's Nineveh? Capital of Assyria. Behold I am against you says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke. And the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth. And the voice of your messengers. Shall be heard no more. Jump to chapter 3 verse 18 and 19. Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains and no one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you for upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually. Would you not say, that the judgment of Assyria would be swift and very, very complete. But when I say complete, I don't speak in terms of obliteration or annihilation. Because in verse 19 of our text, I want to close with this thought, that even in the midst of such a description of judgment, There is the slightest suggestion of hope. We are told that there would be trees of a forest so few that a child could count them. And that suggests that there is not total obliteration or annihilation. Yes, a nation has been conquered. But it has not been annihilated. As we shall see in the next section, as we start in verse 20 next time, and finish next time, Israel would be left a remnant for the fulfillment of God's purposes for her. But so also Assyria. So also with Assyria. The emphasis is still on judgment, yes. But this is also preparation for an astounding revelation we are given later in chapter 19. I'm going to leave this with you. But I want you to look at it. I know that we're going to be dealing, when we get to Isaiah 19, we're going to be dealing with the millennium, the millennial kingdom, millennial period. But understand this, why would God then say this? Isaiah 19, verse 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt. And the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. Sorry, I'm not going on. We'll wait till we get to chapter 19. But you know what? You can study this yourself. Look into that. This is the Millennial Kingdom. We'll talk about that when we get there. But once again, Assyria mentioned. And that, you have to remember, Egypt and Assyria were not friends. They were enemies. And Israel sat between those two enemies. And Israel was hated by both those enemies who hated each other. So what an interesting prophecy all right, that's your homework. You got some homework now. Figure it out. All right. Will, when we get there, we'll we'll study it. Shall we pray?